Good evening. How's everybody doing tonight? Good. We're going to uh, take a look at the uh, inter- introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, so let's turn to Matthew chapter 5, and I'll read verses 1 down through verse 14. Starting in verse 1, it says, Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. When he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth, and he taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be exceedingly, exceedingly glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You are the salt of the earth. For if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. The city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way... Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let us pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. Lord, we ask for your mercy and grace uh, to be upon us, Lord. We pray that you would give us knowledge and understanding, that you would give us wisdom. Father, that your word would not return void, that it would accomplish its purpose. You saved us to be conformed into your image and into your likeness. And so I pray, Father, that you would use your word today uh, to call people into the obedience of faith and sanctify the believers in Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right, this is a, uh, this is a introduction. I probably could have said an introduction to chapter 5 and just a sermon on the mount because uh, we won't go all the way through to ch- into chapter 7. Um, but I think there are several details here that I think will help us to understand the Sermon on the Mount as we uh, progress. If you remember one of the first couple of sermons that I preached for you, uh, the first or second one, I believe I did an introduction to Matthew, uh, which, uh, which I carried the idea of Jesus Christ having all authority or God having all authority. Um, so I seem like I'm doing a lot of introductions. I think that's good. Uh, but the, the introduction of the sermon, I'm going to begin with Matthew chapter 5 and verse 1. I do have a sermon called Mountaintop Experiences uh, because there are three mountaintop experiences that I think are very significant. One is Mount Sinai, Exodus chapter 19. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 1, up on this mountain, I'm not sure what this mountain is named. And then we know the Mount of Transfiguration. And uh, each one of those mountains, I think, carry a very significant uh, thing within scriptures. With Mount Sinai, it was the giving of the law, and we know the, uh, the purpose of the law uh, was not to save. And we're going to see uh, Jesus confront this issue uh, throughout the, uh, the, the Sermon on the Mount. 
Uh, but the giving of the law, uh, the purpose of the law, we know, was a tutor that leads us to Christ. If you read the uh, Ten Commandments, um, there is no, uh, they say if you, if you obey God, you'll be blessed. If you disobey God, you will be cursed. And so if you disobey God and you want to say, well, how can this curse be reversed? And you went back to the Ten Commandments, you wouldn't find any, any solution. And so people were looking for a solution uh, to get this curse off of them. If you remember Romans chapter 1 and verse 18, it says God's wrath is against those who suppress the truth. And that's one of our big problems is that because we are sinners, because we are cursed, God's wrath is upon us, and somehow that wrath, somehow that curse has to be removed. And so in Mount Sinai, God brought the law down. It brought a curse upon his people. And in this mount, uh, Jesus is uh, beginning the uh, gospel, uh, beginning to um, reverse the curse. And that's what we are going to take a look at uh, in the Sermon on on the Mount. And so he's bringing the gospel and uh, Matthew chapter 1 and verse 3 is the, uh, is the entrance into the kingdom. Uh, so if you look at uh, Matthew chapter 5 verses 13 and 14, I think this is in the context here and it's, uh, I find it very interesting. It says that you are the salt and it says that you are the light. Uh, salt is an inward reality, an inward reality. I grew up with, a, I was the middle son, I had an older brother and a younger brother. And uh, I don't know how your children are, but uh, we like to like to get up in the morning and run down before mom and dad got up and get our fruity pebbles or our fruit loops out, and it's sugary enough, and we still like to take a couple of tablespoons of sugar and put it on top of that, so that after we eat our fruit loops and fruity pebbles, we have that nice little uh, syrup there on the bottom of milk and sugar that you got to eat after you ate your cereal. Well, being boys, you know what we had to do. Uh, one time I came down and emptied the sugar bowl out and filled it up with salt, so that when my brothers came downstairs and, and fixed their bowl of cereal, they'd find out rather quickly that it was salty. Uh, the issue is, is that you can't tell just by looking at it because it is an, is an inward reality. Jesus even said about uh, uh, judging or being spiritually discerning, it says man judges by outward appearance, God judges the heart. Uh, all the way through scriptures, we see uh, Jesus talking about this, this inward reality, that Confronting the Pharisees, he says, you're like whitewashed tombs. The outsides are all clean, but the inside is dead man bones. Uh, You clean the outside of the cup, but the cup on the inside is uh, is dirty as well. And so when we look at the uh, Beatitudes, the first four are going to be inward realities. If you're going to be kingdom people, uh, what does that look like? If God said that he saved you to be conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ... Uh, if he says that if he began a good work in you, he will carry it through completion, well, what does that look like? Well, I believe that there's going to be several inward out, uh, realities that are going to be true about you as a believer, uh, and eventually uh, you will also begin to see those outward realities as well. Now, light, we are the salt of the earth. Light, uh, we look at the light here, and we, can, and we can see what it is. We can tell what it is. We can go outside, and we can look Uh, at the sun, and we can see the rays, we can feel the rays. And so there's an outward reality uh, within the Beatitudes as well. And so the second four of the uh, Beatitudes we're going to see as an outward reality. Uh, Well, let's begin uh, with with Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. And this is going to be introductions. Uh, 
I'm scheduled to preach next Sunday night as well, and we'll, we'll take up Matthew chapter 3 and continue to move uh, next Sunday night. Uh, but uh, since we're talking about the introduction into the kingdom of God, uh, we need to define what it means to be poor in spirit. Matthew chapter 3, uh, excuse me, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3, it says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We'll look at the word blessed and we'll look at the word kingdom of heaven next week, but for this week, let's just look at poor in spirit and uh, determine what that is. Uh, first, let's talk about what it is not. Uh, it is not low self-esteem. Uh, it, is, it is not a physical emotion uh, in that you had a bad day and uh, you're walking down the street kicking a Coke can or a rock, uh, just thinking in your mind and saying, woe is me, woe is me, what a, what a bad day I've had. That's not the kind of, uh, of uh, feeling that we that we have. So it's not low self-esteem. Uh, it, is not, uh, it is not being bankrupt, and I mean by that, it's not that we had something that we then lost that we now have to regain. Uh, perhaps another way, another way of looking at it is we don't have any spiritual portfolio. In other words, God, God doesn't come down and go, well, let's, see, uh, let's see what you have. Let's see how many, how many bills have you kept up on. Uh, how much? How many? How much is in your savings account? What is your What is your credit score? Okay, uh, your portfolio looks pretty good. Uh, so let me give you uh, eternal life. That's not what uh, That's not what God does. Okay, so he's 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 not uh, it's not low self esteem. It's not being uh, uh, depressed. Uh, it's not being poor or bankrupt, uh, and it's not having a uh, spiritual portfolio. So what is it? Well, I think the probably the best word that I can think of is beggar in spirit. To be a beggar in spirit. What is true about a beggar? A beggar has no resources of his own to meet his everyday needs. No food, shelter, or clothing, or finances to buy those things. And so a true beggar on the street has nothing, and when they're begging, they're looking for somebody that has the resources that they need, and they're going to beg that individual for it. Okay, so as believers, uh, to enter into the kingdom of God, what we have to realize is that we have no resources of our own that merits anything for the kingdom of God. We are, we are total beggars, completely depraved, nothing of value in God's sight to merit or obtain eternal life. Therefore, in entrance into uh, the kingdom of God, it is having that understanding and then finding the one that has the resource that you can beg for with the hopes that he would give and that you would obtain it. And of course, we know that that is uh, God in giving his son, uh, Jesus Christ. <clears throat> so Jesus, what I think Jesus is doing is trying to get the people. There, there's two things I think that may be going on here. The first one is he's trying to get everyone to the point to enter into the kingdom of God. And so he's trying to get uh, the uh, disciples as well as anyone that is in listening range 
to understand that if they're going to get into the kingdom of God, they have to realize that they're beggars, that they do not have the resources within themselves to obtain uh, the kingdom of God or eternal life. The other thing that perhaps may be going on here is that God is talking to the disciples and he's beginning his three-year ministry on earth and he's going to disciple them and teach them about the kingdom. And so he's teaching them how to discern or how to see or what to do when they go out into the community and they begin to see the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders and the uh, everyday people that are walking down the, uh, down the street. And so there's, uh, and so I think those two things are going on. So when Jesus begins to, uh, begins to uh, teach, uh, he's going to tear down uh, some of the false ideas that, they, uh, that, the, that the people were having in that particular day. And uh, I like to think of it as though we are climbing a mountain and, uh, and we will eventually reach the top of that mountain and we'll see that as, as I move forward. And so what was Jesus emphasizing as he was teaching uh, to help the individual to get back to uh, understanding how to enter into the kingdom of God. Well, first in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, uh, Jesus is, uh, did not do away with the law. Now, understanding Jewish culture and understanding the scribes and the Pharisees of, those, of that particular day, uh, they were, they were uh, people who would uh, try to expound on a law uh, to be able to teach the people how they were going to obey that law. In other words, uh, if it says, thou shalt uh, keep the Sabbath holy, well, then they would sit down and they would uh, decide what it means that you, what it meant to keep the Sabbath holy. So not only would you have the law that God made, but you would have 10 or 15 or even 100 more laws on top of that to show uh, how we as a church are going to obey this particular law. So if you are supposed to do on the Sabbath differently than what you're supposed to do the rest of the week, well, Monday through Friday, you go to, the, uh, you go to work and, uh, and you tie your shoes. Uh, so on Sunday, you would break the Sabbath if you tied your shoes, and so now you have to wear slide-on shoes or sandals of some sort. Also, uh, you start your car Monday through Friday to go to work. So on Sunday, uh, you can't start the car, and so you have to walk. If you go down on Habersham on Saturdays, uh, I, I believe you'll see all of them walking to the, uh, to the synagogue on that particular day. I had a missionary friend to, uh, to Israel, and uh, he was talking about how legalistic the Jews were and, uh, and, and really showed how bizarre they became in making laws that was a great burden on the people uh, to fulfill uh, keeping the Sabbath holy. Uh, and he said he lived in this apartment, was predominantly, uh, was all Jews because he was in Israel, and uh, he, he, he was watching TV one afternoon, and one of his Jewish neighbors came over, and they wouldn't tell him what the problem was. Because it would be a sin uh, to get my friend to go over and do what he wanted him to do, 
So he had to kind of insinuate what he wanted to be done. And what he wanted to be done was to close the refrigerator door, right? Because opening a refrigerator door uh, caused the light to come on, and with that light coming on, uh, it broke the Sabbath. And so you can see how legalistic it got. So when we, when we see Jesus here, I mean, put yourself, put yourself in the synagogue with the Jews. Not only do you have the Ten Commandments, but you have hundreds and hundreds of laws around these commandments that you're supposed to do. And so the, I would imagine they're saying, man, I wish we could just do away with these laws. And so Jesus is coming, and he says, listen, I'm not here to do away with the laws. I'm here to fulfill the law. Right? He's not doing away with it. He's going to fulfill the law. Uh, so the first thing about the kingdom of God is that the law is still important in the kingdom of God. It's not being done away with. Secondly, in verse 19, it says, Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches other to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Okay, so... Uh, less than perfect obedience does not fulfill the law. Less than perfect obedience does not fulfill the law. Some people say, well, it's just a little white lie. You know, there's no distinction between white lies and dark lies or red lies. A lie is a, is a lie. And uh, no matter how small it is, it is a sin in God's sight and it breaks, and it breaks his law. Uh, best, the best way to look at it, I think, is not the law that you break, but whose law did you break? Because if you tell a lie and God said, thou shalt not lie, you disobeyed God. If you, if you murder, it says thou shalt not murder, and so you disobeyed God's law. So the issue is God made a law that you disobeyed, not really measuring each one to see who did the worst one. We're all lawbreakers, and we broke God's, and we broke God's law. So if we're going to get to heaven based on uh, the keeping of the law, then we have to have a, a, a perfect obedience, absolutely perfect. And by absolutely perfect, I don't mean that you, uh, you obeyed God's law for one day uh, or that you obeyed God's law for one week or a month or a year or five years or ten years. If you're going to get, get to heaven based on the law, uh, you would have to stand before God today and you'd have to say, God, I've never sinned in the past. I am not sinning now in the present, and I can guarantee you I will not sin in the future. And I don't believe, well, I know nobody could do that except for Jesus Christ. And so if we're, gonna, if, if we're going to get into the kingdom by the law, it's going to require absolute obedience. Verse 20, it says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter into uh, the kingdom of heaven. So you can imagine the Jews looking at these, uh, these Pharisees, these, the Levitical priesthood, and they're making all of these laws up, and, uh, and they're seemingly obey them, I imagine, in the sight of the people. And uh, a lot of people have a tendency to, to put uh, pastors and spiritual leaders on some kind of a pedestal, uh, as someone that, that you are to emulate and someone that you are uh, to follow. And it could get a little confusing if you're not, uh, not careful into thinking that that person is the standard uh, when it's not. Uh, but quite frankly, you could put any religious leader that you want to in that particular passage, and it would mean exactly the same. 
If your, uh, if your righteousness does not exceed that of the Pope, you will not enter into the kingdom of God. If your righteousness does not exceed that of Billy Graham's, you will not get into the kingdom of God. If your righteousness does not exceed that of, put a, put a person in it, David Jeremiah, John MacArthur, uh, you name it, you put a name in there, they are not the standard. And trying to emulate them and be like them and expect that, you know, if, if John MacArthur is going to get into heaven and I can be just as righteous in him, then I must be getting into heaven too. No, that is not the standard. And, and Jesus was tearing that obstacle down in front of the Jews that the Sadducees and the Pharisees and the Levitical priesthood was not the standard by which you enter into the kingdom of heaven. Verse 21 through 30, I won't read them all. I believe you know what uh, they say if you've read Matthew's gospel. Uh, but outward righteousness does not fulfill the law. Now put yourself in the place of a Pharisee. And, uh, and you can imagine that they are very protective, and per perhaps many pastors today are very protective of outward appearance of things. And, uh, and they were probably thinking, uh, if, if I'm going to uh, be innocent in committing adultery, well, then I just need to get married and stay married to that one woman and never cheat on her, and then I'll be perfect in keeping that law. Perhaps we could say, well, I've never pulled out a gun I've never pulled out a, wife, a knife. I've never killed anybody. And so I've, I'm living that law perfectly. So you can see Jesus maybe stand in front of you asking the question, how many here have never slept with another woman besides your wife? And all of them Pharisees probably raised their hand. Proud, boastful. And he said, well, you've heard what it said of old, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I tell you that if you lust after a woman in your heart, you're an adulterer at heart. And I'm going to see the Pharisees starting to drop their hands. And then there might be some still there bold enough to hold their hand up. And they said, well, how many of you never pulled out a gun? Or back then, maybe a rock or whatever they used to kill people. How many of you never pulled out a gun or a knife or killed anybody, held his hand up in the air? And I didn't, I didn't. Well, you've heard what it said of old, thou shalt not murder. But I tell you, if you're angry at somebody and wish they were dead, then you're a murderer at heart. And you can see some more, more uh, Pharisees dropping, dropping their hand. Because we judge by outward appearance. God judges the heart. He's just as concerned about the inward reality of the Beatitudes as he is in the outward reality. He's just as interested about your heart before the law of God as he is about your outward actions before the law of God. Uh, verse 31 uh, through verse 47 uh, I say that we don't, uh, we don't get to heaven by comparing men with men or comparing ourselves uh, with others. Uh, loving your enemies, right? An, an atheist loves their children. An atheist loves their best friend, right? And so what, sets the, what should set the Christian apart is that we love more than just our family and our friends. We even go to the extent that we love our, uh, love our enemies, All right? And so uh, we do this in two ways. One, uh, we compare ourselves with perhaps other people in the church. Uh, perhaps we compare our, ourselves uh, with, uh, with other members or people on the outside. Just to give an example, before I was saved, and this is before I was saved, uh, I used to watch, well, now, it's, now the, most, the worst one is Jerry Springer. But back when I was growing up in my 20s or so, it was... Uh, I can't even name them. So why did I go there? 
Donahue and some of those other ones. But anyway, they, they are, they're all the same. There's talk shows and, and they're corrupt. They're, they're, they're not very good. And so let's just use Jerry Springer because we, we are uh, a little bit closer to today. Um, I used to watch those things before I was saved. And the reason that I did is because I was a pretty rotten person. Uh, I won't, I won't uh, hang my dirty laundry out here before you today, but I was a pretty awful person. But I justified it in my own mind myself because I looked at them. I said, you know, I'm bad, but I'm not that bad. Now, what kind of a measurement is that? I'm not as bad as those in, on Jerry Springer, so I must be a pretty good guy. Well, what, is, what do the outsiders do? The outsiders look at the church and they'll look and they'll say, all those hypocrites down there at church. I know him. I see how he lives around his house. If he's getting into heaven, then I'm certainly getting into heaven. Well, guess what? None of you are the standard for the outside world either in getting into heaven. And so we don't want to compare ourselves with ourselves. Well, as we climb up this hill and we reach the top of Mount Everest, we get to Matthew chapter 5. In verse 48, and in verse 48, it just says, You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the standard by which you have to uphold to be able to enter into the kingdom of God if you are going to do it in your own strength. And again, nobody can say that I have never sinned in the past. I am not sinning now in the present, and I can guarantee you that I won't sin in the future. No one, I believe, would be bold enough to stand before God and to be able to say such a false statement. So in conclusion, I think we will, we will see, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but all the way through Matthew's Gospel, uh, Jesus confronting people or people coming into contact with Jesus or with God uh, and when they do they seem to always have the same perception uh, about themselves when you stand in front of the holiness of God uh, there's only one thing uh, one opinion that you can come out with and that is that you're not holy and so if we turn to uh, Genesis chapter 18 Genesis chapter 18, look down at verse uh, 27. <clears throat> Genesis 18, 27, it says, Abraham answered and said, and said, Behold, I have under, undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Okay, standing in front of the Lord, and he, he compared himself to dust and ashes. Genesis chapter 32. Down at verse 10. Jacob says, I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and all the faithfulness that you have shown to your servant." He was unworthy of all that God had given him. 
which is a definition of God's mercy and grace. He, he gives what we do not, uh, that we do not deserve. Uh, Moses, we can look at uh, Exodus 3.11 and 4.10. I don't have to turn there. Uh, he says, who am I? I am not eloquent, asking him to, uh, to speak. Uh, I think Moses is a lot like myself. I don't consider myself uh, very eloquent or intelligent. Uh, I uh, joke all the time. I tell people that I was a, a four-year varsity letterman in high school. I got at least one F all four years. And uh, I graduate not a cum laude. And uh, so I, I, I am not very eloquent. I told the pastor that I'd like to write a book someday, but I'm going to have to go back and relearn English uh, before I write. And so I feel like I'm like Moses. Uh, when God said that he calls, called the foolish things of the world, I can get a big amen on myself on that. Um, but Moses, when he was at the burning bush, the bush was, being cons- uh, the bush was on fire, but it was not being consumed. And God said, remove your sandals for you are on holy ground and the best interpretation that i found on that particular verse on why he removed his sandals is because he was before a holy god and god wanted him to know where he came from so take your sandals off and feel the dirt because god made us from the dirt and i've been studying the attributes of god and the bible says that god spoke the world out of nothing he created out of nothing which means uh, the only thing that existed before creation was God and so when God created the world he did not use any part of his essence or any part of his being he created created it out of something else meaning that when uh, Moses was told to remove his sandals and stand on the ground uh, he was showing Moses, I believe, in a, in a real tangible way, listen, you are totally different than who I am. You are something very much lower than I am. And I believe that's what we need to realize if we're going to get into, kingdom of, uh, the, into the kingdom of God. Uh, we must realize that we are beggars, Poor, bankrupt sinners before God. New Testament examples, if you look at Peter in Luke chapter 5 and verse 8, it says, Peter says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. If we turn to Romans chapter 7, we see the example of Paul. Romans chapter 7, verse 18 He says, for I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So Paul says, there is nothing good in my flesh. Now when Jesus uh, came, uh, he, he spoke in this manner as well uh, when he confronted others. Uh, one one particular place is in Mark chapter 2 and verse 17. Uh, you know this verse. It says that it is not the healthy who need a physician but the sick. It's not the healthy that needs a physician but the, but the sick. 
And so we have to realize that we are sick and that we are depraved and that we do not have the resources that we need uh, for, for uh, meriting uh, eternal life. And so what is our response? What should our response to our lesson be today? Uh, well, I think the best example perhaps would be John the Baptist and Jesus. Uh, when they came, they came preaching repentance. And so John the Baptist said, repent and believe. Repent and believe. Every example of, of salvation in scriptures is God coming to man, calling for repentance and, and belief. Uh, so if we're going to repent, we're going to have to understand what we have to repent from, right? And understanding that we do not have the resources and we have a bunch of resources that we're depending on. Perhaps we've been a church member for a long time or we became a Sunday school teacher or we are a deacon or we became a pastor or an elder or whatever the case may be and we're depending on that for our salvation as if that gives merit uh, to, to God for us to receive uh, eternal life uh, God says no that's not what you depend on uh, there's nothing for you to depend on so stop depending on those things and realize that you are uh, bankrupt and so we want to repent uh, and, uh, and, and believe uh, therefore, uh, some of our invitations in some of our churches fall short uh, because I can get everybody saved tonight. How many people here want to go to heaven? How many people here don't want to go to hell? Okay, pray after me. That doesn't work. You don't know why you, you don't even know why you, be, why you need to be saved. You don't know why there's necessary to repent. Right? And so there's a, there's a need for us to realize that we do not have any resources within our own flesh, in our own abilities, to be able to earn or merit eternal life. We are beggars looking for the resource that God has provided so that we can beg him and plead with him and ask him to apply the righteousness of Christ to our life and believe that he died uh, for our sins. And so I hope that gives you some uh, food for thought as we think about going through the Sermon on the Mount and what it means to enter into the kingdom of God. And that's just an introduction. Next week we're going to look further into the, uh, the uh, Matthew chapter 3 and see how far we can get uh, next Sunday as we move through the Sermon on the Mount. Let's pray. Father, we love you and we thank you for your word. And, uh, Lord, we thank you that, uh, that you have made it so clear. Uh, Father, you have uh, uh, revealed to us exactly what is, what is necessary. And you have uh, destroyed everything that we, that we cling to or that we hold to that we think may perhaps merit eternal life. Uh, Father, but I pray that you would, that you would help us to see uh, how poor we really are. Help us to see that, that uh, we have nothing to offer God. There is nothing within us that brings joy to your soul that would move you to give us eternal life without Jesus Christ. Father, all of our significance 
is wrapped up in Christ. We receive all of the blessings in the heavenly places because we have entered into the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. So Lord, help us not to exalt anything in our heart and in our mind and in our flesh and in our life in such a way that we would think that we have earned any kind of favor that would cause you, based on our actions and thoughts alone, to be able to obtain eternal life. Help us to see, Father, that our only hope is to repent of all things that we are depending on and cast ourselves on Jesus Christ and beg you for your mercy and your grace. And so, Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We ask, Lord, that you would accomplish your purpose, that perhaps today would be the day of salvation, But also, Lord, for your children, that you would conform us into your likeness. Work your word into our hearts that we may know you more intimately and that we may exalt your son, Jesus Christ, more accurately. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.